If you want to find your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a series of like life's most embarrassing moments. And I, I feel like I have more than most, okay? Uh, I don't, maybe you don't go public with yours and, and I definitely try not to conceal, try to conceal most of mine, but I, I've had a, a lot of them in life and some of them are actually pretty humorous. Uh, they may, may not have been humorous at the time, but when you think back at them, one of them was, uh, I was just starting my doctoral studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Chuck Swindoll, who uh, was the president and then became the president emeritus, the chancellor, he was actually leading his first class for all these doctoral students, and I got an opportunity to be in there. Uh, there had pastors and some people from around the world that were in this class, okay? And so the very first class, we all get in there, and I, I want to be sharp, I want to pay attention, you know, and I had my laptop with me, and, and I'm, I'm right there front row in the center. And they had us all kind of bunched in there in this class, and and I'm taking notes and just taking this all in there. It was it was awesome. And the class went a little long, like a typical preacher. He just has no concept of time whatsoever. He's just going on. And, and then he's starting to field questions. OK, and and uh, I keep looking at my little battery, little marker on my and laptop, and it's, it's going down to nothing. I'm like, oh, I better wrap this up here pretty soon. But but I want to record all this stuff. You know, this is awesome stuff. Right. And then my computer starts beeping. Beep. Beep. And, and I'm like, oh. And so I'm powering down and I'm trying to look normal. He's, he's answering questions and it, it's everything because people are looking at me and I'm trying to like put my arm over my name tag and stuff like that. And, and then there's this, this Indian fella. He's sitting right next to me. He's answer, asking a question in his broken English and Chuck Swindoll is like, I, I, I don't understand what you're saying. And finally he goes, is there something making a noise? And I'm like, that's me, sir. You know, that's my laptop. You know, and I, I pick it up and I grab my mouse and I'm trying to get through all these chairs there. One of his, his assistants meets me at the door and wants to take it from me. Like, oh, I think I got it from here. It was supposed to go power down in 45 seconds. It seemed like it was 45 minutes. It was so embarrassing. But I do want you to know that uh, things got better. By the end of the week, we, uh, we actually had a worship service at his church on a Sunday morning. And he gave me a hug. I don't know if it was a love your enemy sort of thing or whatever, but... Uh, Things, things got better. But I tell you that because, you know, our lives, they're like laptops. We have a way, as we go through life, where it just drains us. I mean, think about your relationships and your responsibilities and the demands. You know, every single one of us, we have, we have difficulties in life. I mean, just look around. Every single person here, I know they're looking sharp and they're smiling, but I can assure you almost every one of us is dealing with some sort of difficulty. It has a way of draining us. And whether it be like financial stress, maybe you don't have enough paycheck to actually cover your month. That is hard and it's stressful, right? Or maybe you've been kind of working on a financial portfolio and and you're watching it evaporate like water on a sidewalk at a 106-degree normal day in Waco, you know? And it's just it's gone, right? It's just going away. Or perhaps um, you're dealing with some personal health issues. You've got an illness or something that is, is, has a major effect on your health. Maybe it's even something mental or emotional. You're, you're under a lot of stress. In fact, you might even feel like your brain is starting to fragment. How is it that you live when it seems like your life is completely just falling apart? Perhaps you've got some relational difficulties. Maybe you feel absolute alone. Maybe there's tension at work. 
Maybe you're married to a difficult man or a challenging woman. And you're like, how how is it that I'm supposed to experience life and to have strength for the challenges and the difficulties I face? If you do not know how to live and experience God's strength in your life, I'm going to tell you right now that life is going to be long and difficult. That is why when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 4, this is like one of the classic texts on how to live and lead with spiritual strength. If you are a spiritual leader, i.e. you're a parent, you're involved in some sort of ministry, you lead a Bible study, you work with our kids, college kids, you are a fellowship family leader, if you've got a ministry in our community, maybe you lead some group, you absolutely have to have down the principles and the patterns that are found in these verses. Because these are essential to life. And what I've found is that most leaders and most Christians don't know how to recalibrate. and They don't know how to experience the life of God as they go through the difficulties in their own circumstances. So how do you live and how do you lead with spiritual strength? Well, let me just tell you, beginning in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 6, he's going to lay out four priorities. And the first one is this. You have to learn how to feed daily upon the word of God. Notice what he says, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. If you want to know what mentoring looks like, spiritual discipleship, that's what Paul is doing with Timothy. He's saying, you need to do this. You need to be pointing this truth, these truths, out to your people. But in order for that to be a reality, you personally have to be nourished on the word, with the word of God. You have to have scripture flowing through your life. It is absolutely essential to spiritual health. You have to actually learn how to be grounded in the truth. God doesn't want his people being kicked around by every little wind of doctrine, new scheme, new little myth that is circulating, whether it's just kind of out there in the world or it makes its way through the Christian bookstores and onto the radio and on the TV. He wants his people grounded in the truth. And the only way that will happen is if you become a person of the book. And that is especially true of spiritual leaders. How are you supposed to lead someone if you yourself are starving spiritually? And so he says, I want you to be constantly, you get the idea of the ongoing nourishment of the word of God in your life. And that's what a pastor or a spiritual leader or an elder is to do. They actually function like a lighthouse. A lighthouse gives a warning like there's some serious dangers on these rocks. And the lighthouse also points the way. This is the way to go. That's what spiritual leaders are doing. Are doing. And Paul says to Timothy, you point these things out. But in order for that to happen, you have to be nourished with the word of truth. Let me just tell you this. You can't give out what you don't take in. Is that right? You cannot give out what you do not take in. And so Paul says, I want you to have the, notice what he calls it, the words of faith. It is, it's the word of God that instills faith in Christ. It gives us courage and sound doctrine has the idea of theology. It teaches us truth about God, life, man, heaven, hell, and it's found in his word. When, what, let me just tell you what happens. Churches 
start moving away from this book. Now, they're not going to do it. They're not going to say like, oh, we don't believe in the Bible or anything like that. What happens is just practically they start moving away from the book. And so it's not that you won't hear a Bible verse here or there, but the idea that people that actually know the word are in the word on a regular basis, that just kind of goes by the wayside. And if you get a church that starts with elders and pastors or leaders that kind of punt on inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God, and they start losing sight of devotion to Christ, but just trying to keep the crowd moving forward, engaged and entertained, you got a church that's on the path to death. Now, it may take 20 to 30 years, but if you do not, if the word of God loses centrality in a church or in a believer, you're on the path to destruction. Now, let me tell you the difference between the Kiwanis and the Elks group and the JCs and the Lions Club. The difference between those groups and a church is that a church holds completely to the authoritative scripture, the word of God, and a devotion to Christ. We are not just a group of good deeder, good deed doers, just kind of we're just trying to do nice things, keep people happy. No, we're not. We are people that are engaged with Christ and we want to be in his word. And if you're in a church that, that just rarely teaches truth, the, the problem is, is that it's not that you, don't, you just hear air all the time. It's that you don't have your souls fed with truth. And you may survive, but you likely are going to tithe your children to a scenario like that. Because the gospel is never made ultra clear and central. The word of God is always kind of put on a shelf or it's treated so lightly and no one really knows it. Or worse yet, they just kind of grab a verse and they assign a foreign meaning to it. You can't afford that. God doesn't want it for his people. That's why he says, Timothy, you need to be constantly nourished with the word of truth. You are what you eat, right? Your diet shows up in your life. It's true with the food you eat. It's also true to what you do with your soul. And that is why the scriptures place so much emphasis to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be shaved, accurately handling the word of truth. You need to be a person of the book. Now, my family and I took a little vacation down to San Antonio. I'm like, we're only going to be gone for five days. And it would, it would just amaze you how much stuff you need to go on a trip like that. I mean, what happens at our house Everybody packs all their suitcases and the sleeping bags and the, and they got the coolers and the food and all the games and it just gets stacked up in this big pile and it's kind of like a puzzle to see how I can get this all fit into the van, right? Okay. And I am really trying hard to not have to put on the huge topper that functions like a sail and really kills gas mileage and all that because the kids get really hot when you put them up there and so I don't want to Okay, uh, so uh, I don't want to put them up there because I want to get everybody in the van, right? So, so we load it all in, and you get all the kids and their pillows and their all the stuff that they've got with them, and and there's this big jar, and it's it's got these caterpillars, and and some kind folks at the church gave our family a big jar of caterpillars, and Karina said that the caterpillars are going. I'm like, I thought she was kidding. Like, what? No, 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 no. I mean, we're leaving the cats and the plants. We don't need to bring 
No, we're going to bring them because Karina has this philosophy that we want to embrace learning at every opportunity. And, that, and she always says that, right? And the kids sometimes groan when she says that, but we're actually going to take the caterpillars. We're, we're observing them and they're going to form a chrysalis and we're going to watch them become butterflies. And how are we going to be able to do that if they're in our house? And I'm thinking, well, the cats could enjoy them because we're not taking the cats. No, we're taking this. So you get everybody in the van. I mean, they are literally, you just build around them. They're all packed in. And then one of them is holding the large jar. And there's this dill in there. And these caterpillars just kind of go into town. And that's all fine, except um, uh, that night we, were, we had stopped at Cracker Barrel. And we're having dinner. And it was all great and stuff. And, and then Karina informs me that the caterpillars are out of food. They have eaten through all their dill. I'm like, so they need food. And so I'm like, I got it. I know it was you. Well, we're at Cracker Barrel. If there's one restaurant in town that has some old dill laying around in the kitchen, they do, right? So I'm like, Karina, I'll just go back in the kitchen. I'll ask them if they have some old dill around there that we could just borrow for a while and feed them to our caterpillars. And she's looking at me, and she's looking. I'm wearing my Fellowship Bible Church Waco, Texas t-shirt. And she says, no, okay? I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I, just so that you can sleep tonight, I want you to know that we had made a stop at HEB. We got, couldn't find dill, but they had some parsley or whatever, so we stuck that in there. And what happened is uh, one of the caterpillars formed its chrysalis like soon after that. And, and it was a pretty decent-sized chrysalis there. And then the other two kind of were eating, but see, they had gone without food for a while. And eventually they made their chrysalis, but it was smaller. And after a while... They actually, the butterflies emerged. The first one, the one that was kind of the all-you-can-eat buffet kind of caterpillar, right? Never stop eating. Remind of anybody? Okay. And, all right. And he, he has a huge butterfly. The other two, when they eventually emerged, not so big. They were, they were small in comparison to the, other, the first one. And that is because the first one was always feeding on the food. I'd like to tell you there's, there's a lot of parallels to caterpillars and Christians. If you don't eat, you can't grow. If you were like staggered by immaturity, like, man, I should be farther down the line in terms of my heart for God and maturity in my life. At this point, how's your diet? If you don't eat, you can't grow and your soul needs food. That's why Paul says you need to be constantly nourished with the words of the faith. Can I ask you to do this? Could you make it a point to open the Bible each day? I I don't want to be legalistic because I'm totally all into grace. But even if you open up the book for a minute, just a minute, while you're eating breakfast, before you get to the newspaper and all the bad news, just can you, can you just even, just for a minute? Because I desperately want each one of you to experience the fullness of Christ and that is impossible apart from you being in the word and the word shaping your life. Let me tell you another central principle if you're going to know how to live and lead with spiritual strength. You have to forsake the fables of the world. Notice what he says right after that. You feed your life with truth, the words of faith, and the sound doctrine. But then he says, verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. He says, have nothing to do with the muthos, it's where we get our word myth, have nothing to do with the world's myths. And he says they're, they're fit only for old women. Women, this is kind of uh, was a phrase that was used in philosophical circles to point out something like a viewpoint that had no credibility. We might translate it like old wives' tales, right? 
And you're just like, oh, that's, that's not true. But yet, it's kind of passed around. And he says, have nothing to do with the world's myths. Whether it be like the ones that we looked at last week in chapter 4, verse 3, where you got men who forbid marriage and advocate uh, abstaining from foods which God has created to be greatly, uh, gratefully shared in. Or you've got folks that are creating out of these genealogies all sort of mystical numerical combinations. Or they're just creating fictitious stories and yet they're trying to tie them to, to biblical truth. He says, you want to have nothing to do with that. It's kind of like a chemist. Now, a chemist might actually study the chemicals that he's playing around with, right? And he, it's pretty cool. I mean, you can blow things up and you can make things fizz and change colors. All that's sort of great. That's great. Chemistry can be a lot of fun. But you would never ingest that stuff, would you? Why? Well, no, of course you wouldn't do it because it'd make you really sick. And you do not want to have air in your life. You want to have healthy doctrine. But let me just give you some of the myths that are out there. There's, there's always going to be a temptation, especially in American culture, to create new theologies and new twists on scriptural truth. Whether it be saying, well, well hell's not real, or we'll find some seven-year-old kid and he'll tell his dad about his dream slash vision about heaven and all of those fanciful things. And like, people will buy thousands of copies of that and they'll give more attention to that to scripture. And they'll actually think that that's what heaven is like when it doesn't even jive with all of what Scripture has actually told us about heaven. Or there's myths where people try to work, uh, assign a number for a letter in Hebrew, and they're trying to create these simple, these hidden meetings. Or perhaps you're taking the pyramids, and you've created some sort of understanding, like, oh, they, if we look at these blocks and the angles that they form, and they point to particular stars, people buy into that because it seems like it's fascinating. I'm like, oh, this is how God is revealing truth. These are myths. Or um, you buy into this myth, that your value is tied to the amount of money you've got in your financial portfolio or your bank account. Well, let me give you another myth. You're only as good as what you look like and the clothes that you wear. And your whole identity is all wrapped up in what people think of you. Or another one, that life just doesn't matter unless you've got a particular position, or you're married, or you have kids, or you've reached this status economically. What you want to do is, is when you come encountered with these myths that are out there, to find out how does it line up with the Word of God. When you've got Mormons that come and say, of course we're Christians, and they've got their own slant and take, and, they, and they, want to, they want to identify with Christians, and yet they are about as far away from it as possible. They have a completely different Jesus. They themselves believe that they're going to be gods. Is that, is that right? How does it line up with Scripture? You've got Jehovah Witnesses, and they show up, and they've got their myth. But their myth tells you that Jesus isn't God. He's the Son of God, which, in their mind, has to be a lot less than God. You want to be very careful. Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Literally reject that. The world has its ideals on femininity and masculinity and what marriage is and all about its views on sex. But God says this. And so you want to be very careful that the world's views don't creep into your belief system because you can't live well and you certainly can't lead well if you're if your diet is myths. That's why Paul says, have nothing to do with these worldly fables. If you're going to live and lead well spiritually, 
Not only do you got to feed yourself daily on the word of God, you have to forsake the fables of this world. Let me give you a third. You have to foster spiritual practices in your life. Notice again in verse 7. Right after he says, have nothing to do with these worldly fables, he says, on the other hand, I want you to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You have to learn how to foster spiritual discipline in your life. The word discipline, the Greek word is gymnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium. And it has the idea of rigorous, strenuous, self-sacrificing training. You give yourself. And, and gymnasiums were extremely popular. Uh, Ephesus had a large gymnasium. In fact, the Greeks, they had pretty much gymnasiums in every one of their cities. And they actually became a focal point. Let me give you a little bit of history. It wasn't they're like, oh, we need to exercise to have good health. That wasn't the idea of the gymnasium. The gymnasium was the training ground. Every city actually functioned like a city-state back in the Greek Empire meaning the men in the city were its defenders and its warriors. If the city was ever attacked, who's going to fight? We didn't mobilize an army from someplace far, far away. It was the men that fought. And where did they learn how to fight? And where did they train and build strength? They did it in the gymnasium. And this got started pretty early on for these Greek kids. By the time they're 16, they were working out pretty hard. And, and this actually got carried over to the Roman Empire. However, really what happens is that once the, they started developing large armies, the gymnasium kind of took on a different form. In fact, some, even some of the early Roman historians, thought that this actually led to the demise of Rome and that they moved away from training how to fight to into just body sculpting. And you actually see that reflected in some of those statues. You're like, How do those guys get so ripped? They've been working out in the gym. This isn't a modern-day phenomenon. This has been around for a long time. But in order to be like that, when he said gymnazo, discipline, you have to apply yourself. And he says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You've got to apply yourself to growing in grace. You have to apply yourself to maturing in the faith. Timothy, you don't want to be peddling unapplied truth. This has to have a reality in your life. It has to first take root in you. And so he says, I want you to train yourself. And we know that if you're going to develop, you've got to discipline yourself. And we see that in all sorts of areas. Like, for instance, in eating and food, we know that if you don't discipline yourself, right, if you can't say no to the third helping of ice cream, you're going to be running into some pretty serious health problems, right? Yeah. Hopefully that's not news for you, right? Let me give you another area. Discipline when it comes to work. If you can't carry out the responsibilities of your job, you can't show up on time, do your work, do it faithfully, do it correctly. If you don't show initiative, you're going to find yourself likely unemployed or close to it. They're going to want to move you out because you don't have the discipline to get the job done. Or another area, just education. If you don't learn how to study and show up for class and apply yourself and and get the textbook and read and take the test, your lack of discipline will lead to your lack of education because you're going to be gone real quickly. You can only get so many F's when you're out of school. And so we know that discipline is needed for development in all these arenas, but somewhere along the line, Christians have dropped the idea that you have to actually apply yourself to the development of your faith. Maybe that's because we've 
kind of neglected this passage. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Godliness has the idea that you respond to the grace of God with reverence, with spirit-filled obedience, and there is a desire for holiness, that you actually become like Christ. You're godly. If you want another text on this, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, and we've got a slide on that. It says, Paul says this, Do you not know those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? I don't care what happens in some of the sports leagues where we're all winners and everybody gets a medal. That doesn't work that way in the real world. I'm not sure why we want to do that with our kids, but that doesn't work that way. One gets the prize, the guy or the gal who breaks the tape first. So he says, well, then only one receives the prize. Well, then why don't you run in such a way that you might win? You ever seen a race? I mean, the people that want to win, they're not just lollygagging around and jogging and stopping and tying their shoe after 50 yards or anything like that or taking 10 minutes at the water break. They are running to win. And Paul says, that's how you want to live. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Really, part of being an athlete, a lot of it's mental. It's what you think up here. And so you want to exercise self-control physically, emotionally, mentally. They then do it to receive a perishable prize or a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I mean, you've got athletes at that time, they would literally put themselves through all this discipline, all this training. They would strive and they're going to, for, to be warded like some celery wrapped around their head. I mean, doesn't that just say, oh, yes, I'm living the dream. We, on the other hand, you know, it's like, you know, a 50-cent trophy, man. We will totally expend ourselves. We're a little metal, right? We'll give ourselves to it. He says, everyone who competes in the games, they exercise self-control. He says, then what, if we're after an imperishable prize, our hope is fixed on Christ himself then we want to run in such a way that we have discipline and self-control. He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I'm applying myself. And that's what you do. You foster spiritual practices in your life. And he goes on to say, look at verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, okay? Now, I want to stop right there. In case you're thinking like, ah, that all that exercise stuff, man, that's not biblical. And finally, I found a verse for it, right? Ah, I knew it was bad. I knew all that exercise would kill you. Actually, he says it's only of little profit. He didn't say it's of no profit, but compared to what he says next, it's of little profit. He says, but godliness is profitable for all things since it's whole promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness, however, it has benefit in every aspect of your life, your character, your relationships, how you parent, how you are as a friend, how you engage with people at work, clients, how you deal with your enemies, and how you actually do your ministry slash career. That is all affected by godliness. It's profitable for this life, and it's also profitable for the life to come. I think that godliness developed and exercised in this life, with its accompanying responsibilities, actually leads to greater responsibilities when we enter into the kingdom of heaven. We're not just going to be sitting around doing nothing, 
We're actually going to be engaged. We're going to be doing things as the master assigns. If you prove yourself responsible now and growing in godliness now, it's like you're going to have greater opportunities to do so in the life to come. But then he says, he says bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. This is a, I just want to mention this a little aside, but this particular verse, when I, after I became a Christian at the University of Oregon, um, I got involved with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, they now go by the name Crew. And uh, this was a pretty vibrant group on campus, about 250 students, uh, definitely very much engaged in evangelism, discipleship. Um, they'd have like these 24-hour prayer trains. They had lots of, you know, you'd, every week you'd go out and you'd discuss the gospel with all these non-believing folks gathered at the University of Oregon. And one of the things they had was this uh, the prayer group on Friday morning from 6.30 to 7.30. And I had, uh, after I became a Christian, I'd been invited to go to that group, but uh, I, I never went. I always declined because I actually had a little workout routine, and I always, that was in the middle of my workout. And so I, I'd always say, yeah, I'm going to pass on that, but thank you anyway. And one day I was talking with the campus director, a guy who would later become one of my mentors in life. And we were talking. He says, hey, have you ever heard about our prayer group? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I actually have from quite a few people. Yeah, he said, you got to come. Well, I'm, I'm a little busy. What are you doing? You know, most college kids are probably in bed at 630 or something like that or studying. And I, well, I actually work out. He says, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Why don't you read 1 Timothy 4, 8? Give it some thought. Uh, we invite you. We'd love to have you. And so... I, uh, you know, as a brand new Christian, I knew nothing about the Bible. You find First Timothy 4, 8, you read this, but bodily discipline is only little profit. Huh, why is he down on bodily discipline? But godliness is profitable for all things. Whoa. And a couple weeks later, then, I, I made the adjustment. It took me that long, but I, like, I adjusted my schedule to make that prayer group a priority. And I did for the rest of my college years. And I tell you, that was such a good time to make sure that I had the right priorities. So let me just tell you some of the spiritual practices. When we talk about foster spiritual practices in your life, one of those is you want to be focusing on Christ at the center of your attitudes and your activities. Think of it this way. Keep Christ at the center. Maybe you want to write it down and put it on your desk or on your fridge somewhere. Keep Christ at the center of whatever you're doing. Whether you're walking or working or riding your bike or mowing your yard, just think about this. Keep Christ at the center and think about Jesus. Let me give you another spiritual practice. Be in the word. Just find a a habit, develop a habit, find some time where you can be in the scripture. Like, for instance, take this book, 1 Timothy. We challenged you at the beginning of this. Why don't you try to read it once a week? And some of you who have got really high-level reading skills, you can actually read this once a day. It only takes you 10 minutes. Or find a passage or read a proverb a day or a psalm a day, but find a pattern where you have the word of God in your life. And let me give you a third practice that I think is vital. You can't be legalistic. You can't legislate these. But develop patterns of prayer, confession, thanksgiving, and praise. Learn to talk to God and communicate to God the details of your life and develop that kind of practice. Because when you foster these kind of spiritual practices, you know what happens. You're experiencing the life of Christ, and you live well, and you lead well. Now, there's all sorts of other practices you could do, memorizing and praying through Scripture and solitude. But but make sure that you do at least those three. That will help you tremendously fostering spiritual life in yourself. It's kind of like your appetite. 
you, uh, it'll, you'll, it'll grow as you use them. So you've ever found that the more you eat, the kind of more you feel like you need to eat some more? What is that? I mean, like last night, Karen and I, man, we had a major meal. And I was hungry again. Last night, I'm like, what's up with that? It's like you just feed your appetite. Well, so it is with the word of God and prayer. Now, what happens when you don't want to do this, by the way? Because this is going to happen. It happens to me. What happens when you don't want to read the Bible or pray? You ask God to change your desire. The problem isn't with God or his word. The problem is with my heart, and our heart always has a propensity to not do what it should. So, God, would you change my desire? Help me to want to do what you want me to do. And finally, let me give you just a final practice. And this is huge. In fact, it's, it's probably central to all of them. If you're going to live and lead with spiritual strength, you need to learn how to fix your hope daily on Christ. Look what he says in verses 9 through 11. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For, it is for this we labor and strive. He says, it is for this purpose we labor. It has the idea that you, you apply yourself in, uh, in a way that, I mean, you actually are paying a price. It's up to weariness and exhaustion. And the other word, strive, is it's agonizomai. It's where we get our word agonize. He says, it is for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, prescribe and teach these things. He says, you're going to have to apply yourself to this. It's going to be hard sometimes. I wish that it it was just, man, it's always easy. It's always easy to pray. It's always easy to do the right thing. It's always easy to minister with difficult people and in difficult circumstances. But the reality is that it's not. It's not personally for your own personal development. And when you're concerned about the spiritual development of other people, it's hard. I, I, I want you to know there are many times I feel completely wiped out, sometimes even on the verge of burnout, because you are so concerned and you so much want people to experience grace and the fullness of Christ. And there is so much to be done. And he says, You want to labor and strive, but notice what he says, because we fixed our hope on the living God. What we do, though, is we fix our hope on Christ. Lord, you have to give me the strength. This is all about you. Would you give me your wisdom, your perspective? And you literally, you learn to focus on Christ as you go through the day. And those who do that experience spiritual life, and they lead well. And notice this text here. He said, who is the savior of all men. Did you see that? Now you're like, whoa, look at that. How about that? Every single person is, is saved, right? And they're all going to heaven. Is that the reality? Actually, it's not. Actually, most people are probably on their way to hell. And they will perish in an eternity without Christ. But what he says there, who is the savior of all men, especially of believers, what he's emphasizing is this. There is one Savior in this world for all of humanity. And his name is Jesus Christ. He entered into this world through the incarnation. He is the self-existent one. But the self-existent one, God the Son, entered into humanity. And he became a man. And he lived a perfect life. He performed miracles. He engaged in conversations. He taught. He went to a cross. Before that, he took a beating. 
And he died and he paid the penalty for sins and he rose again on the third day that those who will what? When he says, especially of believers, believe, trust, fully trust him. He is your savior. And do you know why we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the forwarding of the gospel? It's because we fixed our hope on the living God. He is it. There is not just, well, there's lots of world religions. You just pick one. There's one. His name is Jesus Christ. There's a lot of myths out there, but there's only one Savior. And so we fix our hope on him. It's kind of like those cameras. You know when you got that camera and you, and you look and they have that little grid? They have, it's kind of like that scope where you can actually kind of focus in on what you're going to take a picture of. And you do that and the camera actually, you know, those digital ones, and they actually bring that into focus, right? And then you take the picture. If you do it before then, it's going to be a little fuzzy. That's what this text is telling us. If you want to live with spiritual life, vitality, vibrancy, and you want to lead well, you have to learn to keep focusing on Jesus. You keep thinking about him. You keep thinking about how he came to this earth. Think about how he engaged in this world. Think about his miracles. Think about him on the cross. Think about him rising again, his appearance to the disciples. And you say, God, Give me hope in Christ. You, the resurrected one, give me strength and grace. And as we learn to this, live this way, focusing on Christ, we have the spiritual strength for life and we lead well. It's kind of like this, friends. Our spiritual health is shaped by our habits. And this text, the one that we just looked at, it lays them out there. Did you really want spiritual life and vitality? Do you want to lead well? then these verses are for you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage. You have refreshed my soul so many times in these past weeks by just focusing, looking at these words, but even more importantly, seeking you in them. And Father, I would just pray for anyone who might be here who's never put their trust in Jesus, that they would see that he is the only savior for the world. He is the living God and they would turn from their sin and trust Jesus as their Lord, their life and their salvation. And Lord, for all of us, we see it, we've heard it, we've got a copy of it in our hands. Lord, through the power of your spirit, would you make this a reality? Would we live in the vitality of walking with Jesus and the goodness of his grace? Lord, we'd ask this and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.